Welcome to Educate with Dr. Jefferson, the talk show that makes the connections between research, policies, and practitioners that are too often missing from the American education system. Now, here's your host, Dr. Jonathan Jefferson. Good day, listeners. Welcome to Educate with Dr. Jefferson. I am your host, Jonathan Jefferson. You can learn more about me at my show page on TalkZone.com. Today we are going to discuss English language learners, ELLs. First, let's go far back in American history. Back before any nation existed in North America. Back to when hundreds of Native American tribes inhabited the continent. These tribes each possessed their own language. In other words, the first Americans the true Native Americans, existed in a multilingual environment. Today, that environment still exists. I embrace the differences in the people around me, without fear, without concern, and without resentment. They enrich my human experience in ways a homogenous society could not. Growing up in Queens, New York, the most diverse place on the planet, opened my eyes to the wonders of the world without the need of a passport. Now I enjoy learning how to speak Spanish. It has landed me in Spanish-speaking countries such as Guatemala, Dominican Republic, and Panama. It has given me an appreciation for the challenges English language learners face when asked to survive in the United States. My first guest, Pierre Rancy, is the director of second language programs for the Uniondale School District in New York. Mr. Rancy earned his first college degree in French literature and philosophy. He has worked as the English as a Second Language ESL Instructional Supervisor for the East Ramapo Central School District, ESL Department Chairperson for the Nyack Public Schools, Director of Field Experiences at the School of Education of the City College of New York, and Resource Specialist at the Southern Westchester Board of Cooperative Educational Services and an ESL teacher in the New York City Public Schools. Pierre, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Dr. Jefferson. Thank you for having me. Hey, thanks for coming on. I greatly appreciate it. So, Pierre, what is a LEP student, an LEP student? Well, uh, an LEP student, that's the legal designation of a, um, a student who, has, uh, who comes from a home where a language other than English is spoken, and that student has been assessed and has been found to be limited English proficient, meaning that that student, in, in order to function in a regular classroom environment, would need additional support, such as is offered in programs like ESL, or English as a Second Language, or a bilingual education program. And these are the rules for New York State. If a, a student is found to be uh, or classified as LEP, then that student should be getting the support so that they can thrive in the regular classroom. Okay, now sometimes I stumble and stumble when trying to uh, speak my my native language, which is English. So, how is an LEP student identified? Well, uh, in New York State, there is a, a very formal process to identify a student as being uh, limited English proficient, and that's covered under the Commissioner's Regulation Part 154. And basically, uh, when a parent or family, you know, registers a child in a public school they have to fill what is called a home language questionnaire amongst all the other papers that they have to fill. And in that home language questionnaire, if um, uh, various questions are asked, and uh, if, it is, if it is found that uh, the child is uh, exposed or uh, speaks a language other than English in the home environment, then that child uh, and the family goes to what is called a preliminary interview to determine to what extent that the child uh, speaks the home language and English, and then a decision is made to see whether that child uh, should take a language test. Right now, the language test that is official uh, in New York City is called the NICETEL, and basically that test assesses the level of English that the child possesses to see if it's enough to survive in an academic environment that, uh, that he's going to find in the classroom. So after... Uh, taking that test, the child is determined to be either a beginning-level English learner or an intermediate-level English learner or an advanced-level 
And sometimes the child tests what is called proficient, meaning that the child is functioning with a level of uh, knowledge of academic English that is sufficient for him or her to function in the classroom without any intervention or any support. Okay, so this also applies to students who are born in the United States, but their home language may be French or Creole or Spanish or whatever the case might be, and therefore they may still be limited in their English proficiency, correct? Yes, that is correct. Uh, the uh, the uh, regulations are very specific. The child does not have to be born in a, in a foreign country. The child can be, and many of our uh, English language learners do uh, are born in the United States. Uh, but uh, they are born in families that speak a language other than English in the home environment, and that's why they, um, they you know, they assess them to see whether they need that support. Uh, you know, um, many times they don't need it because they have enough English to survive. That, uh, that not to survive, but to be able to function uh, adequately in an academic environment. It's when we found that the English uh, or their level of English knowledge is not enough. This is when we provide the support either through a bilingual program or through an English as a second language program. Okay. Now, when uh, twice I did, actually three times I've done immersion uh, in Central America. When I first did immersion in Guatemala and both times in Panama, they uh, first assessed me by having a casual conversation in Spanish, starting from something very basic, you know, hello, a greeting, what have you, and progressing to find out what level I'm on. Is that similar to the experience that uh, yes, students have? Digital, yes, this is why they go to what is called an informal interview, where the child is asked certain basic, uh, you know, questions to see if he or she understands. It begins, especially with the little ones, like uh, "What is your name?" You know, uh, "How old are you?" You know, types, types of questions like this. It's to determine, uh, and then the, the questions do get progressively more complex, and uh, and you know, at a certain time the uh, the teacher who's doing the interview is usually a licensed ESL teacher. We'll make the call to see whether the child, you know, uh, you know, has enough English to be able to take the uh, NICETEL, which is the test that's going to tell them exactly at what level of English proficiency they are. Okay. And this is done with students as young as uh, kindergarten? Kindergarten, yes. Okay. From kindergarten through grade 12. Okay. So let's say they're identified as an LEP student. Um, at whatever grade or whatever age level, um, is there a point where they are retested and declassified? Yes. Every year, all uh, English language learners in the New York State Public Schools take a test called the NICE slot, uh, which, is, which stands for New York State English as a Second Language Achievement Test. It's given every uh, spring. Uh, right now, we are in the midst. As a matter of fact, we just finished uh, you know, the, the time spent for the nicest lot as of last Friday just ended. But, you know, during this period of time, all students um, who are classified as LEP and who are receiving, uh, uh, or whether or not they are receiving services for their limited English proficiency, they have to take the nicest lot to see what progress they've made uh, in the past year in their acquisition of English. And that test is what determines whether they are still beginners, for example, or whether they've moved, let's say, from beginners to intermediate level students, or from intermediate to advanced level, or even if they are found to be proficient, meaning that they have enough skills to survive in an academic environment. Okay. Now, do you find that students who uh, are younger are progress more quickly than the older students? Like, for example, if a student entered in junior high school, are they... Um, LEP students for a longer period of time than a student who entered in first or second grade, or is it different for every student? It is different for every student because this falls under what is called uh, factors uh, influencing uh, English acquisition. Because a student, basically, uh, a student's temperament might affect, uh, you know, how fast uh, he learns, really, or she learns English. For example, they found that uh, uh, it's children that tend to be more uh, extroverted tend to uh, uh, express their knowledge of English faster than those who are, you know, shy and introverted. Uh, and also it depends on uh, the proximity of the language to English. For example, Romance languages, you know, like uh, Spanish, uh, French, Italian, for example, uh, they are, they are uh, um, uh, of, uh, linguistically of close proximity to English. So somebody who speaks uh, one of those languages may, lang may learn English faster 
then let's say some uh, a student who let's say speaks uh, uh, Chinese, for example, one of the Arabic languages, which is uh, uh, further removed for, uh, linguistically from the English language. So you have uh, these different uh, uh, factors. You know, for example, home experience, whether the child learned another language before he or she came to learn English. So you have a myriad of uh, factors that affects how fast a student may learn English. Okay. Now, the, your response just triggered two questions. <laughs> One, um, if a student has already learned a second language and English is their third language, do they acquire the third language more quickly? Well, the research seems to show that they do, uh, because okay. again, they've already have those uh, those uh, basic linguistic skills that they've already learned or absorbed, and now they just transfer them to the new language. This is why once you know one or two languages, it's very easy to learn a third and a fourth and a fifth one, because okay. you, you have those skills. Okay. So okay, I, I was I was curious as to how uh, some people end up learning several languages. Yes. And and you know you just respond answered that pretty much after you've learned the I guess you know the ability the how to learn that how to sticks with you making the, exactly. the follow ups easier. Okay. Exactly the application of those same skills. This is why, for example, even academically, if we have students coming to us uh, from another country where let's say they went to school and are on par with their American peers, these students tend to learn English much faster than those who, let's say, were academically behind in their native uh, countries. So, you know, uh, even academically, it stands. Great. And um, also, you mentioned how an extroverted student, you know, usually acquires the language more quickly. Would that apply also? Okay, because an introverted student might know a lot, but you wouldn't know that he knows because he keeps to himself. I, I, okay, I understand. <laughs> yeah. Now, 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 has there been any correlation? Maybe there hasn't been, but for students for, who are in, involved in sports, because sports is a universal language. We have students who come here and they jump right onto a soccer team that has English and French and, you know, what have you. Do those students tend to grasp the language quicker? Well, you know, I personally have not read uh, uh, any research that uh, uh, says that, but just from experience. I can tell you, being uh, watching them in the soccer field, they learn to communicate, even if they develop what is called a pigeon, of, or, uh, especially in <laughs> soccer. <laughs> they develop they, they, a soccer pigeon. They communicate, especially if one misses a goal or everything. You can, you can see, they can tell the other how disappointed they are, for example, and then exactly. the and they'll, they'll understand. In another universal uh, language is, uh, is uh, music. And also, uh, the language of mathematics, again, tends to be uh, universal. And uh, students who are um, English language learners, for example, they, they, they seem to do very well. Again, as long as they were educated uh, on par in their native country, they do very, very well uh, in our classes with, uh, with math, for example. Wow. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because in some of my past programs, I brought in experts who expressed the importance of you know, music to the learning process and also of movement and math to the learning process. And you're kind of tying that all together with, with, with you, how you just responded. Um, Mr. Rancy, at this time, we need to take a short break, but we'll be right back with, with more right after this. Welcome back to Educate on Talk Zone. Here's Dr. Jonathan Jefferson. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back to the show and our discussion of English language learners with my special guest and one guest for today, Mr. Pierre Rancy. Uh, before we continue to ask our expert guests more questions, if you would like to join our conversation, the phone lines are open, 888-463-6748. That's 888-463. 463-6748. We're taking your calls on Talk Zone. Uh, Mr. Rancy, before the break, you had shared how uh, students who are more involved socially, whether it's in sports or um, who are just more expressive, tend to learn more quickly. Um, I probably uh, uh, misquoted that a little bit, but it, it led me to a story about a youngster uh, that came into a Long Island school district who ended up being a, a soccer All-American. He came over from Haiti having zero English, and within three months, because of his involvement on a middle school soccer team, he was able to um, communicate effectively. 
However, when he became uh, a teenager, soon after he graduated, I remember taking this youngster on a uh, a three-day hike in the Adirondacks, and I found that he had difficulty with names, for example, the names of mountains and things that were just a little bit um, foreign to him. Uh, is it possible that some kids are capable of getting by um, socially and, and appearing very fluent, but when it comes to details such as or reading or maps and things of like that nature that it may be more difficult? Oh, yes. Um, this uh, uh, it falls right in line with the research of uh, uh, Mr. James Cummings, who is a professor at a university in uh, in uh, Toronto, I think. Uh, Mr. Cummings' uh, uh, research really influenced the whole field of uh, bilingual education and the teaching of English as a second language. And basically what uh, he had found through his research was that uh, you know, students tend to acquire what he termed social language. Uh, uh, that is a basic uh, interpersonal communication skills, which he calls BICs. And that is uh, students, uh, uh, through interaction with their peers in the playground, for example, in the lunchroom, and just regular interaction, tend to develop, uh, um, you know, a level of English which is very deceptive because it appears that they're speaking English, which they are at a certain level, but it, it and sometimes teachers uh, are uh, amazed to see that, you know, a child may, you know, be speaking fluently and appears to understand when spoken to, and yet uh, they fail miserably at their academic tasks. And what Mr. Cummings found was that uh, whereas it takes, uh, it can take from, for example, six months up to two years to learn this social language, but to learn the level of the English language that would make you successful in uh, uh, academic task, that takes a lo- much longer period of time. And uh, it varies between seven to ten years. That is to reach that level of English proficiency that will make you successful in the typical uh, American classroom. So, okay. so it's, uh, and, uh, and that level of English he called CALP, which stands for Cognitive Academic Language Proficiency. Okay. So there is a difference between the BICs and the CALPs, if you will. So uh, the BICs are the ones that acquire the language, but it's a social language. It's uh, the language of uh, uh, you know peer communication, and that's acquired much faster. Okay. And that would also explain why well, that same youngster really struggled his first year of college, but really started coming into his own um, the second year of college, because at that point, by the second year of college, now he's approaching 10, 11 years um, in the United States. And that's kind of in line with the number of years necessary to go from that social to the um, being able to succeed uh, professionally and academically. Would you agree? Uh, yes, it is. However, um, one does not have to wait. And this is why, uh, you know, we have uh, ESL teachers, for example, or bilingual teachers, because we cannot wait for the student, we cannot wait for ten years and others to start teaching the student. True. There, there are ways that the students can learn. That is to make the content accessible to that student at the level of English proficiency that he or she is. And this is why ESL teachers are very good using a variety of techniques to make sure that the content in math, science, social studies, for example, are accessible. Because you see. These English language learners are not exempt from any of the state tests. They have to take the same test and pass them in order to graduate high school. The only um, uh, uh, sort of exception they make is that, for now, uh, for grades 3 through 8, they may be exempted from the English uh, language arts test in their first year of uh, uh, schooling in, in a U.S. school system. Now, do you believe that is fair? Because as I dis- diligently apply myself to learning Spanish, if I were told I would have had to take an exam, um, and I've been studying for, I guess, two years now, I don't feel I'd be very successful on that exam at, at this date. And that's after two years of study and immersion. Well, you know, personally, I do believe that uh, it is uh, not the best practice to have a child or uh, any student take uh, a, a test that is, First of all, that is rigorous even for mainstream students, mainstream American English-speaking students. The tests are rigorous, especially the new uh, uh, Common Core-based ELA uh, English language arts test. Now, that English language learner has to take the same test. Now, of course, in New York State, they do offer what, what are called accommodations, meaning uh, that, uh, for example, an English language learner taking the ELA exam, for example, may get extended time, 
maybe taken to a separate location, you know, these kinds of accommodations. However, um, they are really not enough, in my opinion. Uh, but, again, um, this is the, I mean, these are the rules, and we must follow them. So we in the ESL field, we do our best to make sure that they are uh, very equipped uh, before they challenge that ELA exam. Very okay. equipped in the sense that we, we uh, you know, we make them familiar with the type of language that is going to be used uh, uh, according to the standards that uh, they're trying to reach, you know, uh, with a variety of techniques, uh, sort of immersion into the type of test-taking skills that are necessary because, uh, again, uh, they, uh, an, an English language learner may be totally, um, uh, I mean, it, he may not know how to take a test in the American way. For example, mm -hmm. the, the idea of bubbling uh, 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 may be totally foreign because in his native country, um, for example, growing up uh, in a foreign country, all the tests I had to take, I had to write it. I, there was no bubbling. There was no multiple choice. I had to write a, a narrative answer. Okay. So you see, even those test-taking skills, we have to make sure that they know it if they are to be successful. All right. Now, clearly the... the uh ESL teachers are hugely important, but I wonder, uh, are we addressing special needs that the uh, English language learners or limited English proficient students may have, such as, you know, we know we have English speaking students who have um, dyslexia or, or other um, um, limit, I don't know if they call them limitations or challenges, but in addition to learning English, how are we helping those um students or the LEP students if they have additional uh, limitations? Well, um, th that's, a, 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 that's a very good question because the field is still struggling with it. There are students who are dually classified, classified limiting, limited English proficient, and classified with a disability. And the thing is, the trick, if you will, is to find out what's causing um, you know, the, the, the learning difficulty. Is it the language? or is it the handicapping condition? And mm. this is why in New York State, uh, a student who is suspected of having, uh, an English language learner, for example, who is suspected of having a handicapping condition, and the word is very specific, suspected. You don't have to prove that he has a handicapping condition. If it is suspected that he or she has a handicapping condition, that student must be assessed in the, in the language that he or she understands by an evaluator who is fluent in that language. Okay. Now and that's do, why we find out. And that's how we find out exactly: is it the language or is it the handicapping condition that's interfering with the learning? Okay. Now, in the in the New York City area and surrounding areas where you have so many languages and so many students with needs, as we do with English speaking students, are there enough specialists equipped to handle not just the ESL but the ESL of students with special needs? Well, uh, I would say yes, because in my experience, uh, uh, no matter how, uh, you know, uh, unusual, uh, uh, when I say unusual, I mean in the sense of uh, uh, not very, uh, how, how, for example, um, a language like, uh, I would say Tagalog, for example. It, it, I mean, we have a lot of Tagalog speakers, but at one time, we did not have that many Tagalog speakers, and that was one of the languages that were, that were more uh, remote we still were able to find Tagalog evaluators. Hmm. Uh, uh, I, in my experience, if I look for that person, I, I usually found, found that person. Because, you see, it's not allowed to evaluate a child with a translator because that invalidates the whole evaluation process. So okay. we must find somebody who is. Now, whether that person, whether we may have to, uh, I know of one school district that had to send for somebody out of state. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because I know we're fortunate here um, in the, or in, in near any big city of having so many languages, but if you're in a remote area, you may have to pay for someone to come from a long way. Yes, yes, mm -hmm. and I, I know one school district that did that. Uh, again, but again, it's very difficult because, you know, a district being very, uh, their budget being very tight, especially nowadays, uh, so you tend to get uh, uh, a lot of resistance because they tend to look for, you know, other means that are less costly, but Again, the regulations are the regulations. It says that the child must be assessed in a language that he or she understands. Yeah, fair enough. And it doesn't matter. Um, you see, a lot of districts try to get away with saying that, oh, we'll let that child, um, you know, learn more English, and then we'll evaluate him. And that's a no-no. 
Okay. They have to be evaluated right away in a, in a language that they understand. Understood. All right. Now, what are the various English language stages of an LEP student? Well, we start with beginning and, uh, uh, well, basically, um, in the past. Right now, it's changing a little bit, although the changes are not official yet. But still, up to now, we have uh, three levels that we work with. Uh, it's basically beginning. But, you see, there's a whole spectrum, even in the levels. It's not what one person is beginning and then all of a sudden he's intermediate. There mm-hmm. are uh, shades. Uh, for example, you can have a, a, a low beginner who is uh, uh, just learning the language, who, you know, uh, express him or herself very differently than a high beginner who's had some experience with the language, but is still considered a beginner. And then you have uh, intermediate level, and you have low intermediate to high intermediate level students, and then you have the advanced. Again, low advanced to high advanced. There's a whole spectrum. And then each uh, 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 level, each shade, uh, there is a sort of profile, meaning that the child is able to not only uh, have certain receptive knowledge of the English language, but can also express him or herself with uh, the English language up to a level. So basically there's a profile that, de- that helps you determine uh, you know, where the child is at uh, on the spectrum, all the way up to proficient. Now proficient, a lot of uh, 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 schools uh, make the mistake of thinking that when a child is found to be proficient, that means that the child can function like their mainstream peers. And it's not true. What I like to tell people is that a proficient student is just like you know, somebody who just learned, learned to drive and got his license. That is very different than an experienced driver. Absolutely. So, again, the proficient student means that they have enough English language to survive, but to thrive, they still need support. Absolutely. Okay. Now, at this time, we're going to take another short break, but stay tuned. We'll be right back with more right after this. And now, more Educate on TalkZone.com. Here's Jonathan Jefferson. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back to the show. And our continued discussion with our special guest, Pierre Rancy. Uh, Mr. Rancy, just before the break, you mentioned how uh, a student who is proficient is not necessarily on par yet with a, uh, a native English speaker. It just states that they have pretty much got the basics down. And when you mentioned that, I immediately thought of the uh, of a, a youngster <laughs> who I let drive last summer right after he earned his license. And when I let him drive, I was thinking to myself, how in the world did this young man get his license? And uh, when you mentioned that, it dawned on me that he pretty much mastered the basics. But now it's time for him to actually learn how to drive. Exactly. <laughs> so, so that's the analogy I like to use because it's sort of – uh, it uh, uh, projects the message that a proficient student, an English language learner who makes it to be proficient, you know, is not necessarily, um, you know, proficient to the point where he or she does not need any more support. And this is why even in the um, No Child Left Behind Act, you know, English language learners are supposed, especially to, for districts that receive Title III monies, the, uh, an English language learner is supposed to be getting uh, support up to two years after he scored proficient mm. on, on whatever assessment, you know, deemed him proficient. In New York, okay. in New York City, it happens to be the nicest lot. But, uh, yeah, we, he's supposed to get uh, up to two years of support after he scored proficient. Yeah, that makes perfect sense because I really wish these uh, teenagers can get two more years of driving experience before they share the <laughs> road with us. But, um, but what programs are offered for LEP students? Well, uh, we have, uh, well, there is, I mean, there are very, very good programs for, for um, English language learners. Uh, most districts have uh, uh, what is called uh, an English as a Second Language program. And uh, these programs are taught by uh, um, teachers who are licensed ESL or English as a Second Language teachers. And, uh, and these programs may look very different from one district to another, even from one school to another. For example, there are programs that are called uh, self-contained ESL classes, meaning that all the ELLs, uh, English language learners, that are in one grade level are clustered together and are taught by an ESL teacher. Now, this is not one of the best 
different uh, 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 methods uh, to teach ELLs because, again, the research has shown that when English language learners interact with their mainstream peers, again, they tend to acquire the language at a much, much faster rate. Um, a lot of times, a district would have English language learners in the mainstream classrooms and have the ESL teacher either push in, meaning that they would, for certain uh, blocks of time, for example, at the elementary level, you would say during, let's say, if they have a English language arts block, then the ESL teacher would push into that classroom with the mainstream teacher and co-teach that class, if that class has many English language learners. Or another model is the pull-out model, where the uh, ESL teacher would go at certain times and pull the ELLs out of the mainstream class to deliver uh, English instruction to them. Uh, okay. Another uh, program that they have is what is called the bilingual program, which is uh, a bilingual teacher is really a mainstream teacher with uh, what is called a bilingual extension, meaning they have the regular license that the mainstream teacher has, but in addition to that, they have to take certain additional courses that uh, gr uh, gives them that, what is called the bilingual extension. And uh, these teachers teach bilingual classes, meaning that they would teach uh, the class in English and in the student's native language, which uh, um, is uh, in, many, in many cases in New York State, it's Spanish, but of course you have it in uh, Mandarin Chinese, you have it in uh, Haitian Creole at one time, they had many of these classes, uh, but again, it's taught bilingually in English okay. and the child's native language. Now, I, would, I can definitely uh, attest to how important it is to be around native speakers because, you know, I had two, two, uh, immersion experiences in the same year in Panama uh, just a couple of years ago. And the first time I went, I went without any, you know, friends or company from, uh, New York and I was able to progress much quicker because I'm living in a, with a Spanish only speaking family. I'm, I'm attending school. I'm going on different excursions, but everyone's speaking Spanish. However, the second time I went, I went with a friend who already knew Spanish, but he would always slip into speaking English when we were in the home setting or what have you. And I found that that was a, a distraction that was taking me out of my immersion. Yeah. So, you know, so I, I kind of appreciated more being fully immersed as opposed to being able to escape, you know, take a break. <laughs> no, I understand. Well, there, there are arguments for, uh, for really both sides. Uh, the English immersion, uh, uh, they tend to be what, uh, uh, well, no, a, a lot of them, you know, there's a movement, uh, throughout the United States called, uh, English only. And, uh, these, uh, uh those who espouse that, uh, uh, philosophy believe that, uh, the United States is an English speaking country and then any immigrant that comes in should be speaking English and that's it. Uh, however, not all people who, you know, embrace the immersion really, um, agree with that position. Uh, there is a distinction. There, uh, English immersion is uh, the best for acquiring the language uh, uh, the fastest, just like you explained that you acquired more Spanish when you were totally immersed in it. Because mm -hmm. that, uh, I mean, uh, again, it's a very good method. Uh, the argument for the bilingual uh, situation is just because uh, of what I said before, uh, based on um, Cummings' research, if the, if the student uh, does not have the academic level of English, that will allow him to understand and thrive in the classroom, we cannot wait seven to ten years to teach that student. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, if the student can learn math, science, social studies, and Spanish, for example, why not teach him math, science, and social studies and Spanish while he is learning English? And then we, we would have, uh, uh, over time, a transition where we take him from where he is uh, with the Spanish knowledge of Spanish language and then we teach him the English up to the point where you have, uh, you know, uh, the proportions of switch. For example, they may begin with 70% uh, Spanish, 30% English, and then they move to 50% English, 50% Spanish, and then eventually to 70% English, 30% Spanish. And that's why it's called a, a transitional bilingual program, where you may start with more English, again, to teach the content, and then gradually move the child into a... a, a purely English environment. And that mm. um, has been what uh, has been adopted mainly by the bilingual uh, programs in the state of New York, which is different from what we call the maintenance bilingual programs. Because uh, you see a transitional bilingual program, the goal is to transition that child from 
uh, you know, from his native language into English. While a maintenance bilingual program is geared to have the child maintain both languages. Because what happens is that you have children, uh, when they are being transitioned, that lose uh, not only their native language, but also they lose their native culture. Because, you see, language and culture are so uh, uh, intertwined, you can't really separate one from the other. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, sometimes the child is put in a position where he or she is forced to give up his nat- native culture so that he can assimilate into a purely English or American environment. Yeah, and that and that is tragic. So I do like the uh, the uh, gradual process because they do need to learn now. They need to learn their English, their um, their math and their sciences and what have you. So that's definitely a fair way to go. And I find it um, ironic that we have a movement of English only when many European countries, everyone there speaks multiple languages. You know, and they come to the United States and it's like, wow, you guys only speak one language. So I think uh, English only is out of touch with how much of the world functions. You well, know. yes, uh, many, uh, my son just, uh, in uh, January, uh, he visited uh, Paris, and he was telling me how uh, he found that many of the uh, Parisians spoke English. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, um, uh, many countries are uh, moving towards a form of bilingual, trilingual, multilingualism, and, uh, um, uh, however, there are some factions, and I think that in the United States, um, you know, uh, I, I don't think uh, uh, American society is moving towards uh, uh, that. I, I think it's maybe a faction because there have been bills introduced uh, in, the, um, in, in Congress many times to have English declared the official language of the United States, and this has always been defeated. Okay. And 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 I I have learned so much um, culturally, as you mentioned, um, learning Spanish that I never learned from just being told about you know spanish cultures which are all different which are different you know it's a big difference between chile and you know and dominican republic you know there's yes. this you know and and you know so i've learned so much just learning the language that i do understand the losses children may face if they um only learned the english and and, and gave up their their native language oh, of um, uh, being a, a a speaker of uh, many languages i uh uh, it's for each language that you speak or understand. It's like you have a, a, a different window on the world. It's a different way of seeing the world, of understanding it, and even interacting with it. So, um, and you know what, uh, uh, Dr. Jefferson, the research has shown that English language learners, over time, when they learn English, tend to uh, do better in uh, high-stakes assessments than monolingual English speakers. Hmm. And I believe there's probably a lot of uh, um, brain research that would would, would uh, validate that as well. Exactly. I'm not too keen on. Uh, I mean, I know something about it, but uh, the brain research I know has shown that uh, you know uh, the bilingual brains. Uh, I mean, when they look at the various parts that are uh, you know sort of illumined when uh, the according to the experience that the person is having, and mm-hmm. when languages are switched, you know. It shows that uh, uh, different parts of the brain are sort of uh, illumined uh, or illumined at a more, um, uh, or I should say, greater uh, fluorescence, if you will, <laughs> for lack of mm-hmm. a better word, than, uh, you know, a monolingual brain. So, uh, yeah. Yes, those increased neural passageways. And, and as we learn anything, we increase those neural passageways. So um, do, do students who receive, do LEP students receive a different curriculum from the other students? Uh, well, if they do, they really shouldn't know because they have to take the same high-stake test as the mainstream student, so they have to get the same curriculum. But what they should receive is what is called a differentiated curriculum. They should receive a curriculum that is exactly the same as the mainstream but differentiated so that it becomes accessible to them on their level of English language acquisition. So let's say that an intermediate-level English learner is in a social studies class. He's not going to get a different curriculum, but what he may get is that what is called a sort of a scaffolded lesson, meaning, you know, I always like to use this analogy. You take, a, let's say, a typical high school student who is in a social studies class and is learning about manifest destiny. Of course, you'd say manifest destiny, even if you translate it to an English language learner, it's not going to make any sense. 
because it's something that is, again, very, uh, it's bound with American history and culture. Mm -hmm. That has to be what is called scaffolded for the ELL, meaning that there are other things that he must understand before he can understand that concept. Okay. So you see, again, the same curriculum, but with the differentiation and the different scaffolds that will allow greater understanding and then therefore mastery. Now, one thing I wanted to mention before I forget, um, I find it ironic that uh, when um, giving out tests for uh, state assessments, you know, uh, younger children, let's say third grade assessments, are giving the t- some of them are given the test in their native language. And I find oftentimes they don't know they're not literate in their la- native language. So giving them the test in their native language really doesn't assist them much. Have, have you run across this or do you have an opinion on that? Yes. Um, well, uh, this is the, the effort that they've made at the state level to try to give the student as much of a chance as possible. For example, the ch- uh, all the state assessments, with the exception of the English assessment, is available in, uh, I think, the top six languages spoken in New York State, which is, uh, um, I mean, I think it's uh, Spanish, of course, is the biggest, um, but you do have, uh, um, you know, uh, Mandarin Chinese, uh, uh, Korean, uh, I don't remember all six of them off the top of my head, but there are about mm-hmm. six of them that are translated. Now, the reason that um, they are translated is because, again, these are the top six languages, you know, that they found that uh, is spoken in the state. And then the bilingual programs, they do have bilingual programs in English in those languages. So that's one of the reasons why they do have these tests in translation, especially for these kids that are in the bilingual programs. However, mm-hmm. uh, they do make it uh, available to the students if they wish they can even have, for example, uh, uh, let's say a fourth grader who's taking a math test, for example. He can have that test in Spanish and English, one um, on the side of the other, so that if there is something that he's reading in the English version that he doesn't understand and then he knows and can read Spanish, he can look at the Spanish version. But the thing is, he can only answer in one language. But, okay. he, 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 but he has both. And the state does give other accommodations, for example, glossaries, or uh, bilingual dictionaries, as long as the dictionary does not uh, give uh, uh, meanings, but just word-for-word translations, for example. So they mm-hmm. can have that. They have extended time. It's to give them a fighting chance. Okay. And I've also noticed that a lot of uh, translators are hired during that time as well. So I guess yes. certain questions example, are asked. Yes. No, no, these are for the languages that are uh, for, for which the tests are, are not translated. For example, okay. you could say uh, Hindi, for example, or Tagalog. Again, they, they do not have trans, uh, those tests translated in those languages. However, the school districts may provide a translator that will provide a, uh, a very basic translation. It can't, they can't go into interpreting anything for the student. It has mm-hmm. to be very strict, almost word-for-word translation, so that the student has a fighting chance. Okay, and that's fair enough. Uh, Mr. Ransom, we need to take one more break. Uh, this is great information, but stay tuned. We'll be right back with more right after this. You're listening to Educate on TalkZone.com. Back to Jonathan Jefferson. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back to the show as we conclude our discussion of English language learners with our expert guest, Pierre Rancy. Uh, Mr. Rancy, how long does it take for an LEP student to actually acculturate? Well, again, that will depend on the student and his uh, um, and, uh, and so many factors. Again, uh, uh, what, for example, what circumstance under what circumstances? Did he or she come to the United States? If he came, you know, willingly and uh, happily, he would acculture it faster than if he was just dragged, uh, uh, you know, taken out, you know, of his familiar environment in his home country with parents that he loves and brought here. Okay. So, you, you know, there, there are so many uh, uh, factors uh, uh, affecting that, and uh, culture shock again is one of the biggest uh, uh, things that a lot of us don't know about, but does affect how uh, a student, um, you know, um, progress in school. There are various levels of culture shock, you know, again, from uh, being in a totally new environment where you don't know the language, you don't know the customs, and the culture is so uh, strange. Uh, You know, again, a lot of these students, uh, the only idea they have of uh, 
let's say the American culture is what they see in movies in their home countries, and they come and then they see that you know things do not uh, necessarily uh, jive the way that they understood it. So again, it's uh, there is a sh- an initial shock, and then after the shock, then there's a process of uh, healing, if you will, and then adapting. Wow. It really depends on the student and the circumstances of him uh, coming into American society. Great, thank you. And what are the what are the expectations of families of LAP students? Well, the expectations are, let me tell you, very high because you you see, especially uh, the uh, ELLs coming from you know poorer countries, and uh, for these families, uh, education literally is the only way out of poverty. So when they do bring them here in the United States, they do have very high expectations. However, they do not know really what the American school system is like. You see, and uh, and the native countries, they know that education is left to the educators and the experts. So they literally give their children over to them with all the um, expectation that these educators educators are going to do their best for their children, and then they will return an uh, educated child back. Okay, and they are not really, um, the parents meaning, they are not really um, encouraged to participate in the child's education because a lot of times they can't. They don't have the necessarily tools, either educational or uh, whatever it may be, economic. So when they come here, they come with the same assumptions a lot of times where they, you know, give us their children, and they, you know, uh, they have the um, expectation and even the naive expectation that, you know, the system is going to do the best for their children and going to educate them. And all they have to do is, and for them, their idea of supporting the system is to make sure that the child, you know, goes to school fed and clean, and then the educators will do the rest. So there is... um, uh, Learning has to has to happen here. That's why I have a workshop that I do for parents called Navigating the U.S. School System, because a lot of them sometimes they are shocked when they found out that uh, you know they have something to say about yeah. how their child are <laughs> their children are educated. Some of them are in complete shock because they didn't know that. Because again, in their native country, that was unheard of. And again, I do have a workshop that I do for teachers about teaching. Uh, immigrant children, because, uh, again, there are a lot of assumptions that even our own educators have about immigrant families that, uh, you know, uh, have to be sort of enlightened and uh, uh, explained and uh, and also sometimes dispelled, because uh, I've heard educators even say that, you know, the, these parents don't care, which is mm. so totally different, I mean, uh, far, I mean, totally far from the truth, because they, they, they do care. However, they don't know how to express it in a way that in the ways that we expect. So it's a negotiation that has to take place here. They have to learn our ways in our system, and we have to learn their ways too. And that is the only time when we can really have a real communication, and that is going to help that child. In fact, I'm going to actually ask you advice on air. Um, I'm dealing with a a student now. Um, She's a star athlete, a three-sport star athlete, but her grades are starting to tank. And she has a lot of great potential. Now, she was born here. She speaks fluent English and she's and her parents speak predominantly Spanish. And I've been I've I've received their cell phone numbers, their home phone numbers. I've stopped by the house, you know, and and couldn't catch the parents at home. And and I feel sometimes that the parents um, are hesitant to reach out or to respond because they're concerned about their ability to communicate. Am I could I be accurate in that or is there other points I should take? Uh, I would say that, uh, you know, if you had told me this, uh, I would have uh, given you the advice sooner. <laughs> uh, but the thing is, it, no, it's very good. Um, the, uh, you know, one of the best techniques I would use is uh, have uh, somebody, a native Spanish, uh, Spanish speaker, maybe one of your teachers, for example, or a teacher that you know, or somebody that you know in the school that is a fluent uh, or native Spanish speaker, have them call because they would mm-hmm. tend to open up. Because, again, you don't know the circumstances of that family. That family may be afraid of speaking to you because of their immigration status, for example. That, that, that is true. Yeah. You know, uh, and they feel that any contact with a, a, an official institution, if you will, it's like exposing themselves because their immigration status may not be, you know, what they want to reveal or you see, uh-huh. so they try to avoid, uh, uh, you know, any sort of uh, open communication with somebody representing an institution, for example. But if you have somebody who is a native seeker, have them call and, you know, 
you, I think you'll get uh, uh, much uh, further with, with the parents than, than you'll imagine. <laughs> yeah, and, and in fact, I found, and that's one of the reasons I, I, I want to learn Spanish. For many reasons, I want to learn Spanish. The fact that I travel a lot, and uh, most many of the places I want to go um, are in South America, Central America, what have you. I just think it's a it's a it's a comfort. And also, I I'm always very uncomfortable when um, the child is trying to translate for me to the parent. Because I don't know if the child is watering down what I'm saying to favor themselves, or if oh, they're saying that's ex- exactly what's happening. You know? <laughs> and I've been a, <laughs> I've been a witness to that uh, because sometimes uh, they don't know if I speak Haitian Creole, for example, and I hear the mm-hmm. child translating for the parent, and I know that's not what I what I said. And then uh, the child goes into shock when I speak Haitian Creole to the parents. <laughs> so um, uh, no, you're right. Uh, no, a child is not a translator because uh, you see the thing again. It, it has to do with culture. Uh, don't forget, in a situation where a child is translating, first of all, the child is experiencing a tremendous level of shame because, yeah, because of the situation. Yes, and, and it's disres- I find it disrespectful to the parent. So um, that's one. In fact, I, I do sometimes. In fact, I've had my secretaries put me on the phone. I mean, I'm I'm more comfortable now with my intermediate Spanish. And I, I find it's amazing. It's like a floodgate opens when I when I use my limited Spanish. Oh um, yes, and, you and, keep up. <laughs> and, yeah. Then they want to tell me absolutely everything, and I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I have to get some help. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. but um, we we only have about two minutes to go. Um, and there's a couple of things I wanted to touch on quickly. Um. What is the state blueprint for ELL success? I saw an actual document that that you shared that actually was written just like that. It said the state blueprint for ELL success. What exactly is covered in that? It's hard of the press, and it's uh, basically uh, eight steps that the state uh, wants to take to make sure that uh, the education of ELLs in the state of New York is one of the best in the United States. Um, now the, I mean, I, I don't think we'll have time to go through all these eight steps. And these steps, you know, existed in one form or another before, but now they, they're making it official. For example, one of the steps is to have a, a school board have specific, uh, um, you know, uh, goal, uh, not goals, but specific, uh, uh, philosophies for the education of the ELLs in their district so that it's recognized, so that the ELLs are not this, uh, this, a funny little group that they're ashamed of and want to sweep to the side to bring it out in the forefront. You know, again, that's one of the big steps um, to make sure that there is curriculum uh, that is adapted for the education of the elves. You know, all these uh, steps, and it's a very, very good blueprint, and uh, that's one of the things that uh, I hope to, uh, you know, introduce to the district where I am and... uh, Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, make sure that, uh, you know, we adhere to as much of it as possible because it, these are very, very good steps for the education of English learners. Okay. Uh, Mr. Rancy, hopefully I can have you on again, maybe not for a whole show, but this seems to be so much more that we can discuss, and I believe this is a very important topic. Uh, we have been speaking with Pierre Rancy, the Director of Second Language Programs for the Uniondale School District in New York. Pierre, thanks so much for joining us. It is my pleasure. Anytime you want to have me, I will come. I appreciate that. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening to Educate with Dr. Jefferson. Tune in next week as we continue to tackle the truth behind schoolhouse doors.